Welcome to the Startup Wealth Podcast. I'm your host, Joyce Franklin. If you work at a startup or a company with a startup attitude, this podcast is for you. Each week, we talk to an expert guest about financial success and lessons learned on the journey to long-term security. Welcome to the Startup Wealth Podcast, Robin Wollaner. Thank you, Joyce. You have hit a lot of milestones in your career. You were the youngest publisher of a national magazine at age 27. In 1986, you launched Parenting Magazine in a $5 million joint venture with Time, Inc. In 1993, you were Time Warner's first divisional CEO to get pregnant. You were an executive at CNET. And you wrote a great book called Naked in the Boardroom, A CEO Bears Her Secrets So You Can Transform Your Career. Let's start with this. The New York Times called you a corporate entrepreneur. Why is that? Um, Because to everyone's surprise, after Time Inc. bought me out of parenting, um, our deal had anticipated that I would just go away, but they asked me to stay on. And I not only ran parenting for a number of years, but I oversaw magazine development. So we started several magazines under my watch that I'm very proud of. Why don't you tell me about them? Well, basically what we, what we did when we had something really promising, and the two magazines I'm talking about are Martha Stewart Living, which is obviously a joint venture with Martha Stewart, and Vibe, which was a joint venture with Quincy Jones. Um, rather than invest all the money in staffing before we knew if it was a successful idea, we did tests with existing staff. So the parenting staff did the direct mail test, the newsstand test for Martha Stewart Living, uh, and did ad sales for it as well. Uh, With Vibe, we did everything, including finding an editor and overseeing the product. Uh, Obviously, Martha oversaw her own product, but with Quincy, he was not a magazine person, so he really gave us the idea and we ran with it. And then when both were successful tests, uh, they went on with their own staffs. But it it de-risked the startups for Time Inc. to some extent. Working with Martha and Quincy, you know, in the same year was quite a revelation for me. But um, uh, I'm very proud that both magazines succeeded so well. Do you have any stories about Martha or Quincy that you want to share? Well, Martha was really, really nice to me and really not nice to my team. And uh, she needed to be nice to me. And so I thought it was ironic when she went to jail because her secretary turned her in. I think that being nice to people you work with is a good thing, in Martha's words. Um, On the Quincy side, you know, I was awestruck by Quincy. And the Hollywood celebrity world is not one I had ever been exposed to. He was just fantastic. And that was just a joyous experience. And I learned a lot. When you hear that sound, it means I'm jumping in to provide additional context, since this is a podcast. In my book, Life, Liquidity, and the Pursuit of Happiness, I wrote about a universal experience called the four phases of startup life based on more than 65 interviews with entrepreneurs and tech executives to find out what it takes for personal financial success in all stages of launching, building, and exiting a startup. You can find this Four Phases of Startup Life graphic at www.jlfwealth.com. Phase one is laying the foundation. 
This is the exciting years you spend building and growing your company. It's during this time that you get your team together and identify your product or service. You're also raising capital and may take a below market salary. Phase two is ramping up to the liquidity event. For the lucky few who manage to work at or start the right company at the right time, a big wealth creation event is a once in a lifetime happening. It's important to take action early on because your financial decisions could have long-lasting ramifications. The liquidity event happens between phases two and three and is the payoff. Phase three is realizing the dream. The two years following a company's liquidity event can bring on many changes. The day-to-day routine may stay the same, but that startup, we're all in this together feeling usually fades. While phase three can bring a great sense of appreciation and fulfillment, some find this time much less interesting and more routine. Phase four is what's next. You get to decide how you want to live the rest of your life and how to make sure you can afford it. For serial entrepreneurs, this phase never happens. They just go back to phase one. Robin, thinking back on your experience at one specific company, I'd like you to walk us through all the phases and what it was like in each. Fantastic. And I'll use parenting, even though I've had a number of exits, but parenting was my first. And I think this, this, if I'd had a chart like this, it might've helped me understand what I was going through better. So when I had the idea for parenting, I was the publisher of Mother Jones Magazine, which was a nonprofit. And actually working at a nonprofit, making almost nothing is a great preparation um, for founding a company and making less than nothing, which is what I did in the early in the early months. So I had been to supplement my nonprofit income. I'd been teaching magazine startups at the Radcliffe Publishing Course. So I was pretty versed in how to figure out what was wrong with an idea. And literally, when I had the idea for parenting, I was like, "Whoa, this is a pretty good idea." And I tried to take it apart like I would do at Radcliffe with ideas. And I was like, this is a pretty good idea. And I gave 90 days notice um, in my job. Um, and I figured that would be enough time to figure out if I could raise the money to test the idea. Okay, I'll give it 90 days. And I was the breadwinner um, in, in my first marriage. And so I was like, okay, I'll give it 90 days. And if I've managed to raise money to test the concept, I will do it. Uh, If not, I'll take a job. So I simultaneously, I wasn't fully committed to parenting and I had no safety net. I had no savings and I had a bankrupt first husband. So I would say I gradually committed. And by the time the 90 days were over, I did not have the money to test the concept, but I had met the founders of Banana Republic and uh, interviewed for a job uh, on the catalog. And uh, Mel Ziegler, the founder, said that he would hire me as a consultant instead of in a full-time job so I could go on raising money, but also help him on some stuff that he was interested in. So that gave me the safety net. I was able to, you know, I used to joke with Mel, I started off doing about 20 hours a week for Banana Republic. By the end, it was an hour, but it really was a a security blanket because he didn't hire to fill that job until it was clear I was going to be able to raise the money for parenting. By the time I raised that money, I was all in, you know, going through running out of money, going into debt on my credit cards, 
uh, was a, uh, a an experience that forged my commitment to the to the concept. Phase one is maniacally busy and stressful as you funnel all your resources into the company. It's also an important time to project your personal cash flow and evaluate your commitment to the startup. Um, I raised the money for parenting and was able to pay myself a a salary for a little while, Um, but then everything takes longer and I stopped drawing a salary. So I went into debt on my credit cards to keep with, you know, buying a laptop. They weren't really laptops, but buying a portable computer, um, traveling to New York, uh, the kinds of expenses I needed to have. I think I ended up in about $30,000 of debt um, at that point. Once I raised the $5 million from Time Inc., I got a salary. It was not a Time Inc. level salary, but it was a lot more than I'd been making at Mother Jones and it felt, felt like wealth to me. What was unusual, so it was very below market, so it, that is another thing on your chart. I had a hellacious negotiation with the guy at Time Inc. who greenlighted my deal. And he was perfectly prepared to let me make millions of dollars on an ultimate sale, which of course was an unlikely outcome. All startups are unlikely successes. He was totally fine with promising that, giving me 51% ownership, giving me control over a lot of things. None of those things pushed his button. But when I said, okay, after the sale, if you want me to stay on it at Time Inc., I need to be paid the same as other Time Inc. publishers. This outraged him because he was one of those publishers. He didn't want me to be, you know, have my country club dues paid and the kinds of things that Time Inc. publishers had. So it was it was almost a breakdown in our negotiation, but luckily uh, we came to a deal. And that deal is one of the most uh, popular case studies at Harvard Business School today. But I could tell you, I didn't know how unusual it was when I was negotiating it. I was very focused on the magazine, not the money. What do you think that was about, that he promised you all these things up front, but he wouldn't guarantee a traditional publisher's salary and the executive perks after the sale? I just think there was a big contrast in our lives. He was a wonderful man. And I remember one time we were flying back from New York together for him to sort of uh, cut the ribbon on our new offices at Parenting. And he goes, I know you, you're going to sit in the back of the plane, but I am not going to sit in the front and have you tell everybody, oh, the fat cat from Time Inc. flew first class and I had to sit in the back. So he was a great guy. And we had a big joke that once we did the deal and I was drawing a salary, I would take him to lunch because he'd been taking me to lunch through the months of the negotiation, and we would go to either the 21 Club or the steakhouse in the building of the Time Inc. building. And so then when I took him to lunch, I chose a very nice restaurant, an upscale Chinese restaurant near the building, and it turned out they didn't take MasterCard, which was my only credit card. They only took American Express. That's a very New York experience. You just wouldn't see that in San Francisco. So he ended up having to pay for the lunch of that as well, which he never let me forget. So I think for him, he had, he had gone to all the right schools. He was from a much wealthier background than I was. And he was okay with this sort of, you know, young punk from San Francisco, potentially making a lot of money. I don't think he ever really knew if I would or not. But uh, I couldn't be like him because the path he had taken was an assured high salary, country club dues, etc., So let's get into phase two, which is the period just before the liquidity event. 
It may last from zero to 24 months. Talk about what that was like for you. It's so funny that your chart has those, those periods because my liquidity event was a date certain. It was the first quarter of 1990. The magazine launched at the end of 1986. And so we had three years of pub, you know, uh, publication uh, before, before Time Inc. had an option to buy me out. During those three years, I got divorced. Um, and as you know, California is a community property state. Under California's community property laws, assets and debts spouses acquire during marriage belong equally to both of them, and they must divide them equally in a divorce. There are seven community property states, including Arizona, Texas, and Washington. Um, So I lost half of my interest in the magazine in my divorce, which was actually a blessing in disguise, not just because I, I got rid of a horrible marriage, but... It gave me a chance to work with Time Inc. as the majority owner. I had had 51% before the divorce and I had, you know, 26 or something after and nothing changed. Time Inc. still treated me like it was my company and um, we forged a really good partnership. So I had this sort of weird life. I had had to go into debt to finance the divorce. I think I had $100,000 of legal fees is what I remember but it was certainly a litigious divorce and, you know, a day job that paid fine. And, you know, this pot of money that I was going to be getting. And I remember being on the corporate jet at Time Inc. with a bunch of the editors and sort of remarking because everybody knew, I mean, it was a public thing that I was going to be selling, you know, and everyone sort of knew the amount because the ex-husband had gotten a discounted amount, but he'd gotten uh, basically half of, of, you know, an equal amount to what I'd be getting before the discount. And um, the editor of Money said to me, Robin, you can get free checking now. And the funny thing was, I actually was reading Money Magazine. I'd never been interested in money. So I was like, okay, I'm going to actually have money. I have to figure out how to invest money. You know, this was just a shock to me. I'd never had more than a money market account, you know, with my checking account. It gave me some time to research and I talked to, I didn't know very many rich people then. So um, I talked to one of my seed investors who was a rich person and he gave me very good advice. I talked to a friend who was a venture capitalist who gave me good advice and I um, made my decisions. So the things that really were the things I enjoyed like investing in venture capital funds, you know, Arthur said to me, don't sweat it if it's, you know, less than, I think he told me 5% of your net worth. You know, so any given investment, I just kept a boundary on how much I would put at risk. We recommend no more than 5 to 10% of your portfolio be held in the form of stock in any one company, especially the one you work for. Why don't we talk about the liquidity event itself? As you mentioned, Harvard Business School wrote a case study about your deal over 30 years ago. Are you comfortable sharing the details? Absolutely. I'm, I, I am comfortable with it. Although I have to tell you, after the many years of my case study, case study does not have the numbers in it because Time Inc. had to give release to me to even talk about the business plan. Um, and uh, so years went by and many years have passed and, and confidentiality agreements are not in place anymore, and a professor who was teaching the case study said, can you fill in that blank, that number, Robin? 
And I told him the number and he goes, ah, the students won't respect you if I tell them that number. So let's just leave it as XXX. So we left it as XXX. But it was several million dollars to me. It, it just felt like unfathomable wealth. I was single. I wasn't sure I was going to have kids. I was making a very nice salary because don't forget it was after the sale. And and I did, in fact, get paid like a timing publisher. So I was making hundreds of thousands of dollars a year. I didn't need to touch the money. It felt it felt like I was rich. So I, did, I made a few lifestyle changes, but not very many. I, I was more concerned that people would treat me differently than about buying any big things. I've never liked cars. So I know the one purchase I made, I bought an apartment in New York because um, I was a renter in San Francisco. And I was spending about a week a month in New York. So I bought a little one-bedroom, junior one-bedroom apartment condo. I, I had it for a number of years, but I didn't do it as an investment. I, I really did it for making my life easier when I went to New York. And I started buying some uh, modern art in Mexico. Um, my aunt had given me $300 as a wedding gift in my first marriage and, I, and with the instructions that I had to buy original art. And we'd gone to Mexico on our honeymoon. I bought modern Mexican art and fell in love with it. But again, not an investment. It was, wow, I could spend $1,000 on a sculpture. That just seemed like unbelievably wealthy to me. So, but I didn't do a lot of that, you know, and didn't change my life a lot. So the, I guess the most dramatic thing I did at the sale is I threw a party for Time Inc. Not paid for by parenting or by my company, I just, it was like me buying my own wedding. I, it was called Great Partnerships or Legendary. And we took over a building um, in Chelsea and had a live uh, R&B band. And I just invited the people who'd been good to me at Time Inc. And filled it with everybody from the receptionists who used to let me use the um, guest offices for free to the CEO who danced with me. So it was a really wonderful celebration um, and a way for the parenting staff um, to celebrate the sale. That's so special that you did that. It sounds like you realized that to thrive after a liquidity event, it's key to keep a level head and understand your financial situation and what you can really afford. So moving on to phase three, this is right after the liquidity event and it can last for one to 24 months. What was phase three like for you? And what else were you doing in terms of your career and finances? So soon after the sale, um, I became VP of magazine development for Time Inc. So I continued to run parenting. Nothing looked very different there. But I started the things that led to Martha Stewart Living and Vibe. Um, And I did that for a couple of years, very happily. Um, I met my second husband and we got married and... Soon after that, like within six months of that, I made my first career mistake. And it was very much my focus on this transition. It's like I was very aware that entrepreneurs, founders, often outstay their usefulness to their company. And in fact, parenting was doing really, really well. And I wanted to exit stage left while it was on an upswing. It was the hottest magazine in America in 1992 and 1993. So for me, the big surprise of becoming um, an executive at Time Inc., which had never been on, on my you know, interest list, I really wanted to see parenting flourish, and that would be sort of the tying a ribbon on it. 
And so I named my successor as CEO. She'd been the founding publisher of Parenting with me, Carol Smith. And I would have just left, but Time Inc. had purchased Sunset Publishing just after they purchased Parenting for a lot more money than they paid for Parenting. But Parenting was actually more profitable than Sunset. And they asked me to be the second CEO. They had fired the first one. And I didn't give it a moment's thought. I was like, okay, fine. And it was much more about the symbolism than the content of the work. So it was a, it was a mistake. I was a sort of B plus, B minus CEO of Sunset. Not as, not as bad as the guy I replaced, but probably not as good as the one who replaced me. It was not a happy time for me. I was commuting. Um, you live in the Bay Area, so you know. My house was on Russian Hill. Sunset was in Menlo Park. You really could not have a worse commute. So it was, it was not a good fit for me. And can you briefly explain Sunset Magazine and why it was such a special place to some people? It's a special place to me, even though I wasn't the right CEO for it. Sunset is the magazine of Western Living. It also had a book division, family-owned. The Lane, the Lane brothers sold it to Time Warner just about a month after I sold parenting in early 1990 for $225 million, including the real estate. It had a, four, four buildings in Menlo Park. And it's a magazine about sort of four pillars of Western living, uh, gardening, food, travel, and home renovation. And uh, of all those, I'm, I'm interested a little bit in travel and a little bit, as much as I need to be in home renovation, I could care less on the others. It was a uh, unprofitable magazine. It had a terrible corporate culture. Uh, it was not entrepreneurial at all. And it was really being challenged in the marketplace in terms of as an advertising vehicle. So, um, you know, I made it profitable. I did that. I improved the corporate culture a little bit. We resuscitated the book division, uh, which had been a lost leader, and we made that profitable. But um, I was just not that interested in it. So you left the company you started, Parenting, after your liquidity event, and you went to work at a magazine after the founders had left, but that needed a lot of work. I was at Sunset for three and a half years. And in those three and a half years, I had three corporate bosses. I was the CEO of the division, um, but I reported up to a corporate exec. When the third one was put in, I knew he and I would not get along. So I demanded an unusual employment contract. Um, so I said, I'll work for him for a year. And during the year, either one of us can say this is not working for any reason. Um, and I get two years severance. And six months in, he started to get nicer. And I thought, oh, he's really trying. I'm really going to have to make a decision before year end because I'm not happy. I really should leave, you know, but I want to get the two years. So I should do it in the next six months. And the reason he was nicer to me was he was getting ready to fire me. And so he, you know, was sort of tentative about that because I was their golden girl. So when he fired me, they wanted me to come in and run online for Time Inc. And, you know, they had this thing called Pathfinder that I thought was terrible. I took the package and I considered that almost an exit. I got almost as much money as I did for founding parenting. And, but I joined Young Presidents Organization uh, just before I left Sunset, actually. And YPO was a transformative uh, thing for me. Um, and the guys in my forum, and I say guys because uh, they were guys, were like, you should go run an internet company. 
And one of the guys in my forum was the founder of CNET. And he called me one day and said, how about coming in to run CNET for me? And uh, I did it. And who is that, Shelby? No, Shelby's the co-founder. Uh, the founder of CNET was Halsey Minor. So the irony of it was that Halsey was my YPO buddy and the person who offered me the job. But Shelby was my soulmate and my favorite boss and the reason I stayed there for five years. And since yours is a podcast about money, I will tell you what Shelby did for me, which was very nice and I could have been a lot smarter. CNET was public um, when I joined, but the stock was under, uh, under its IPO price. That was the reason Halsey wanted to hire me, was to be able to put out a press release that they had somebody who'd actually ever made money at CNET. And I didn't need, I was still on my salary continuation, right, from Time Warner. So I didn't really need any salary. So when I negotiated the package with Shelby, I thought, I can't have no cash. I'll take 100K. You know, I was working, oh, and by the way, I was working part-time. It was a half-time gig because I was trying to get pregnant. So it was a half-time gig. If I had taken $0 and all stock, I would have made even more than I did. I made a lot of money. I'm very happy with what I did at CNET. That's all pretty public because I was an operating executive of a public company. But I, so I did great at CNET, but um, I would have done better if I hadn't taken any salary. Going back to the four phases chart, what would you say was the most challenging phase for you and why? Well, clear, cl- clearly um, starting the business, laying the foundation, it was hell. Um, I don't have a lot of fond memories. I, I did parenting because I had to. I was driven to do it. But I was anxious all the time. My health wasn't good. It was, it was horrible. So even though parenting became the most satisfying thing I've ever done in my career, almost the most satisfying, I, I had, my final job was actually just as satisfying. But um, parenting was really uh, what made me well-known, you know, in, in the ways that my kids think about it. I got a Wikipedia page that made them happy. Parenting's the reason for that. And I've made as much money as I made on parenting at CNET, being fired by Time Warner. So it, it's not just a monetary thing. It was just fully satisfying to start something that existed for 25 years. It's defunct now because it was bought by its largest competitor and they folded it in. But for 25 years, it made a lot of money for a lot of people and employed a lot of people and gave a lot of people great careers. So parenting was super satisfying to me. But the pre-transition, the getting it started, that was horrible. I I actually thought um, when it was over, when parenting was launched, one day I was thinking, wow, I called hundreds of people to raise the seed money. I had never raised money before. Um, I've been the publisher of Mother Jones. You would not say capitalist to somebody's face, right? Let alone venture capitalist. And so I had the impression that hundreds of people had turned me down. So one day, I mean, nothing was online in those days, so I had to go through my files. I counted up how many people I had asked for money for parenting. Ten said yes, and the number was 70. So one out of seven, not a bad batting average um, for fundraising, number one. And of the 10 who said yes, only one of them had I known before. Um, Everybody else was a connection through a connection. That's great. 
So let's move on. I'd like to talk about your experience in business as a woman. You've said that women should learn self-promotion. How has this helped you in your career? Well, I think that the fact that I love seeing myself in those days, it was in newspapers or on TV or whatever. I love publicity. I was, I was really comfortable with it. And it brought a lot of business benefit to my companies. Um, so I thought that was really good. I wasn't money oriented enough to say it really translated into money for me, except for my giant severance package. So the good part of self-promotion is, I mean, it's how I found my husband, um, father of my children. He's not my current husband, but that was in the days before online, you know, photos or anything. And people wanted to fix us up, but he hadn't seen a picture of me. And then the New York Times came out and I was the cover of the business section. And he's like, oh, she's cute. I'll call her. And uh, so I always said, and I told this to Arthur Salzberger, I found my husband through the New York Times. So self-promotion has been good to me in, in a number of those ways. I think that being a woman and, and a rare woman at the level I was at, it's how the, the case study got written because Bill Solomon, who's a professor um, at Harvard Business School, was under pressure, rightfully, to focus more on women entrepreneurs. So when he saw me in the New York Times, it was like, oh, there's a woman entrepreneur. We can profile her. So I think it's been good. Where I think it hasn't really worked is in the area of negotiating around money. Um, if I have one regret from my career in publishing, I did great. I'm not complaining about how much money I made. But I was paid less than some of the male publishers at Time Inc., and I shouldn't have done that to other women. I shouldn't have let my lack of interest in money affect what women were being paid. And I regret that to this day. So what's your advice to young women? I do a lot of coaching and mentoring of young women. In fact, the last business idea I had, I, I investigated to do a startup. This is in the last few years, you know, so I haven't totally lost the bug, but I chose not to do it is to do a more of a mentor, an organized mentoring thing, to take underutilized baby boomers who are in the end of their careers and match them with young people who need uh, coaching and mentoring. It's just, it, I never figured out the way to make the business work. But I do a lot of it informally because I like to do it and I do it for free. And I tell them all, they have to negotiate better. I think that they've gotten better. I think people may or may not like Sheryl Sandberg and may and may not like Lean In. But if they read the chapters and lean in about negotiating for yourself, I think it probably changed the balance of power a bit um, in compensation negotiation. I think women are doing a much better job because they are so aware that they do a bad job of it. In leadership roles, how do you think women are different from men? I think women are better at, at giving people direct feedback. And um, men seem incredibly uncomfortable with that. This is a gross generalization, but you were looking for a generalization, right? So um, if you're a leader and you've got somebody on your team who needs some coaching, who needs some correct course correction, I think women do that better than men. I think men um, tend to be a little bit better at being ruthless. Over your career, what are some of the personal financial lessons that you have learned? Good question. When I think of the mistakes that I made, I didn't make the mistake a lot of people make, which is being too active in managing my investments because I'm just not that interested in it. 
But I made the other extreme, which I think is rarer, of just letting things sit. So I think my 401k at Time Warner was at about a million bucks when they merged with AOL. And I knew enough, I was an executive at CNET at the time, I knew enough about AOL and certainly enough about Time Warner to predict what a disaster the merger would be. And I didn't move my 401k out of company stock. So, you know, it pretty much went to nothing. So that was a costly, a costly error. So I've learned to pay a little bit more attention, not, not, not as much. And I'm, I'm at a very different stage with investing now than I was for the last few decades. Basically, the way I ever managed my money was I had a spreadsheet and I'd wait till the accounts closed on December 31st and I'd put in the amounts and I would just make sure it was moving in the right direction. Up and to the right. Up and to the right, which I think it did, did except for, I think, 2009. How do you keep your team focused on the product or service and not the stock price? I imagine this would have been a big issue at CNET. Huge, huge issue at CNET. Um, in fact, I'll remember... So I was brought into CNET as senior management. I was 43, and everybody else was in their mid-20s, which was so funny because I had just left Time Warner where I was a young Turk. So it was sort of weird that all of a sudden I was supposed to be mature. And one of those young men, they're all turning 50 now, um, uh, is a CEO himself of a software company. And, but at that point, he, he worked for me at CNET, one of the smartest guys there. And he goes, I think we need to install a little device on everybody's keyboards that'll shock them if they look up the stock price during the day. So just a little shock, won't really hurt them, but just remind them that they're not supposed to do that. And what we found was rather than installing um, a shocker on their keyboards, a falling stock price uh, really helped. (laughs) No one wanted to know. So uh, we were go, go, go. And then we were, you know, in the in the tech implosion of 2000, 2001, uh, nobody wanted to know. So um, there were different challenges depending on what kind of market there was. When our stocks were, stock price was soaring, all of our people were, people were trying to poach all of my best talent. So our goal had to be, how do we retain talent without breaking our bank? And then as the stock fell, you know, all these people had mortgages and um, it became easier to retain them. But in both cases, you're trying to get them to not let the noise of what's going on with a very volatile stock price affect their day job. I remember one of the young Turks who worked for me at CNET, who I, I had to try to desperately to retain during the go-go years because he was one of our best. And somebody was trying to recruit him. And I pointed out that his options were worth $10 million, you know, at that point, if you let them vest and exercise them. And he said, Robin, that's bus change. Now, he didn't get that $10 million because our stock price plummeted, but it was breathtaking what people thought uh, was nothing. Let's talk more about the Harvard Business School case study. It was written about a meeting you, your husband, and your lawyer had with a negotiating team from Time, Inc. about Parenting Magazine. Can you tell me about that event? Yeah. So the first time I met with Time Inc., they'd heard about my test of parenting. It was a direct mail test. And they'd asked me to come see them and sign away basically, you know, 
um, this agreement that said they had any right to pursue the idea, you know, regardless of what I was working on. It was terrifying. And I, we had no cell phones in those days. And I went down to the lobby and I called my lawyer, who was also an investor in the magazine, and I said, they want me to sign this. And he said, Robin, I'd rather sell shares in a lawsuit against Time, Inc. than in a magazine. You know, a lot less risky. You know, don't worry, you can sign it. One of the things that I was proud of when I ran magazine development is I made it a less forbidding document so that entrepreneurs would understand what the purpose is, which was not to steal their idea. So I turned them down at that point because I said, I'm keeping control of the magazine. I'm, they wanted to hire me and have me start the idea. They had the same idea, same name, um, but they were behind me in terms of time. And they said, we'll give you a timing salary. Come work for us. You can start it. I'm like, sorry, no. So then things didn't go so well in fundraising for me. And the venture capitalists um, were not excited about $5 million for a magazine. And I got a call at 6 a.m. one day from this guy who's in the case study, Don Spurtle, um, because people in New York don't think about West Coast time zones, right? So he got into the office. It's 9 o'clock. He calls me at 6 a.m. where I am. And he said, are you still working on parenting? And I said, yes. And he said, things have changed here. Maybe we could do something different than having you be an employee. Maybe we could do a joint venture. And I went, all right, well, you know, if you want to come out and talk to me about it, you know, fine. And uh, that was the negotiation. They, uh, he and the general counsel of Timing came to the Stanford court, met with me and my then husband, who was an attorney. And uh, we spent all day trying to negotiate the deal. The problem, I didn't even have this language then. Um, but I understand it now because of the case study, right? Because I've seen really smart MBA students talk about this case study. I learned a lot from that. The problem was that Time Inc. was a strategic investor, not a straight financial investor. So their whole thing was, if it works, we want to own the magazine. And they wanted to cap the price that I would sell it to them at. They wanted a bargain. If you know, I went to a venture capitalist, they, the sky's the limit. They just wanted to sell to the highest bidder. So I would have rather had a venture capitalist as a partner, but they weren't offering, and Time Inc. was. And so when I made the deal, I thought I was capping my upside, but I didn't really believe that Time Inc. would contribute more than straight finances. And the entire deal was structured to be hands-off. I kept 51%. They had to leave me alone to make all my publishing decisions. And we had to negotiate that because I was structured differently from the way Time Inc. structured its magazines. So it had to be a decision right at the board level of whether they would do it, but they did. And um, so they did cap the purchase price. And that's what made it so unusual because theoretically that would have taken away my incentive. What turned out was that Time Inc. helped the success of the magazine so much in so many ways that in fact it was a much less risky venture by being their partner than it would have been with Sand Hill Road as my partner. I think we would have succeeded under either. But you wound up partnering with the right team, the best team. It wasn't just that they were the best team. They were. They were the best publishing company there was. But magazines depend on advertiser confidence so coming from the most respected magazine publishing company gave Procter & Gamble and Toyota and General Mills and, you know, all the others the confidence 
frankly, way beyond what my deal was, because Time Inc. had every ability to walk away from parenting if it didn't work. And in fact, the early issues did not work. So it gave the advertisers a sense of security, and we were a slam dunk success on the advertising front as a result. Well, congratulations. Thank you. What is your advice to someone working their way up to the C-suite, ideally from a personal financial perspective? From a personal financial perspective, I would say, obviously, you max out your 401k, get yourself, uh, I don't know if I should say this on your um, podcast, but FU money, having enough money to follow your dreams, save enough money. It doesn't have to be for retirement. It can be for your safety net is important. I'm really, really proud of my son, who's uh, 28 as of this week, and he has saved more than his annual salary in the, in the years since he graduated college. Um, so he basically has several years worth of cash if he decides to you know, take another gamble like he's already done helping refugees in Greece. So saving money is really important, but I don't mean looking at retirement stuff. I'm not qualified to say how much they should put away for that. But as an entrepreneur, it gets harder and harder to walk away from a paycheck as you get older, as your responsibilities to your family increase. So if you ever have a dream that you want to start your own business, make sure you have that walk away money. If you're merely progressing up to the C-suite, I'm probably a bad person to give advice on that because I never had any interest. I came in at the C-level at Time Inc. I never would have been promoted up there. I've got way too uh, sharp a tongue. Um, I didn't look like what they wanted. I didn't go to the right Ivy League school. I went to an Ivy League school, but but um, not, not the right one for Time Inc. in those days. So I'm a bad person on corporate achievements. In fact, every job I've ever had in my life has been for a lower salary than my previous job. Um, now, obviously, I make more during during the job, so that I, but that's what I've done. The reason people work in startups is to take risk for the liquidity event and the challenge and reward of building something. It's not for the salary or the severance if someone is laid off. The driving motivation is to create value, which is why Robin persevered. And I made enough money over the years when we talked about Capstone for my final jobs, which were running nonprofits. So um, having the ability to do that was a huge luxury for me. My last job, which was a fitting arc from starting parenting, was I ran a nonprofit that powers electricity for birthing clinics in Africa and Asia. So I went from a magazine for privileged American women to saving women I'll never meet um, in Africa and Asia. And the only reason I had the luxury of that, and I took a salary. In fact, when I told the founder the salary that she was going to have to pay me, she went to the bathroom and threw up. It wasn't that much. I think it was $120,000 a year. It wasn't there. Nonprofit salaries are not that high. And she said, you don't need the salary. Why are you making me pay you? And I said, because I'm only going to do this to build you a sustainable organization. And we have to have enough money in the budget that a professional can take the job from me. And it's got, so we got to be paying a competitive wage. And in fact, nobody would have taken that job when I took it. And 200 people applied uh, when I retired. And the woman doing it has much better experience than I ever did for doing that job. However you define luxury, for me, luxury was the ability to walk away, to do whatever I wanted. And I've always been able to do that, whether it was 
to write a book or to work for a nonprofit or do my last startup, which failed. Um, but I've always had enough money for that FU money. I love that. Well, as we come to the end of our show, where can people find you if they want to get in touch, Robin? I'm easy to find, uh, robin at woolanner.com. One of the benefits of having an, a name like Woolanner is you can have the domain name for $10 a year. So um, I, that, that's my email. I like that in your book, you said that people should learn how to spell your name and realize that Robin can be a female name. I think it's a great name for a male or a female. Well, now that everybody uses pronouns, I, I do say she, hers on, on my ID. But um, uh, I have to say it was, it was helpful over the years because whenever I got a Dear Mr. Wolaner letter, I could just throw it out without reading it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Congratulations on everything you've achieved. And thank you so much, Robin, for speaking with me. This was wonderful. My pleasure. Take care. Thanks for listening to Startup Wealth. Today's show was produced by Eric Johnson from lightningpod.fm. Original theme music by Philip Reynolds Price. To learn more about J.L. Franklin Wealth Planning and how we can help you protect your wealth, mitigate taxes, care for your family, and pursue your dreams, visit jlfwealth.com. We are a growing firm. If you are an experienced advisor who subscribes to our approach and wants to grow with us, please get in touch. If you like the show and want more, please rate and review Startup Wealth in your favorite podcast app. This podcast is for educational and informational purposes only and should not be construed as specific investment, legal, tax, or financial planning advice. Please consult with your professional advisor before taking any action based on the content discussed.